0: When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Luke chapter 4, verse 28. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. To our dim vision, our dim spiritual vision, Jesus may sometimes appear to not be doing enough and when he does act to sometimes be doing it in the wrong place. I think that's the big idea in the gospel lesson that we just heard this morning from Luke chapter four. Um, It's a little hard to catch because it just happens like a news story in, in Luke chapter four. So I actually wanna take a few minutes just to unpack that story that we just heard in its context so that you can see kind of the narrative through line of how one minute this gospel overlaps by one verse with last Sunday's gospel, right? Like Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah, um, he reads a passage in the synagogue, he's he's in his hometown in Nazareth, reads a passage from Isaiah about the Messiah, about how when the Messiah comes, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the oppressed will be set free, and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, right? And it's this sort of of electric moment of, wait, the, the Messiah is here? Whole congregation is is, seems to be stunned and excited, but what we see in this gospel lesson, right on the heels of it, is that there's kind of two minds at play. There's a a waffling, a hesitation. There's this sort of today it's being fulfilled in our hearing, but then, to, to paraphrase, they're like, "Wait a second! Wait a second! How could this guy be the Messiah? This is Joseph's son. We know this guy, right? He's been making." Furniture and stuff for us like he's just a guy like how could he be the Messiah? This is Joseph's son and Jesus as we hear also in the Gospels uh, knows what's in a man so he preempts sort of their next question right like he sees them sort of demurring about this claim that the Messiah is here and it's him and he's by way of sort of quoting this proverb what he's saying to them what he's communicating is I bet y'all are gonna ask ask me to do some sort of miracle to prove it to you. And he must have hit the nail on the head because he's the Lord and he knew exactly what sort of tree they were barking up. And so preempting them, he he cuts through this sort of two-mindedness, this confusion, this lack of belief mixed with excitement um, by speaking about Elijah and Elisha. But to understand why he gives these anecdotes, it's useful to remember that the, the Jews in Jesus' time were accustomed to taking the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah in an overly literal way, that where they, they had come to think that when the Messiah would come, when they read in Isaiah, "He's going to set the captive free, they're like, "Oh yeah, political smackdown time. We're going to get rid of Rome." Israel will be reestablished as a nation. It's going to be epic. There'll be bloodshed, just like in the days of Joshua. Like it's going to be this glorious kind of um, national kingdom assertion. So that's what they've got in their minds, right? They, they just heard it from Isaiah. Jesus knows what their expectations are. That's what they have in mind. So when he says, today, this is fulfilled, he knows they've got this very concrete, wrong-headed picture of the Messiah's work, so he jumps right away in with these two anecdotes, like a great teacher. He kind of jumps in with sort of flanking, by sort of on the side. He says, "Remember, remember, the greatest prophets in history, up until John the Baptist, and then of course his own ministry, Elijah and Elisha, that during a three-and-a-half-year famine, when..." Uh, We don't know the exact number, but tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands, probably, um, of Jews were really hungry. I mean, three and a half year famine is a long time. There would have been a lot of prayers for mercy in that season. And the only time that God moved through the prophet Elijah to miraculously provide food for a hungry person was for one widow who wasn't even a Jew, right? She was a Sidonian. All the Jews are praying to the the one true God for help, and God inspires this prophet to help this woman way out here on the outside of the people. This was not a totally unique event in reaching out to an outsider. He then names Elisha, who, as Jesus says, there were many lepers in Israel in Elisha's time. But who's the, the one time that the Lord stirred up the Spirit in Elisha to heal a leper? Who does He heal? One guy, Naaman the Syrian. That just like Elijah, Elisha only did a little. He healed one person, and it was in the wrong place. right? See, the Bible is so full of the record of the miracles that God has done through his prophets, and then ultimately through Jesus, it's written down for our edification, but I think we can sometimes misperceive that sort of the Bible is just this catalog of like I don't know what cartoon I must have seen watching with Lucy or something but where like a vending machine is just spitting out candy kind of crazy like wildly like it's just this sort of bouquet of endless healings when in fact the Lord's in- intervention in the lives of individuals has long durations in between you know there's decades between the times when he shows up to Abraham but you read those few chapters in Genesis and it's kind of all right there um, and with Elijah and Elisha, we remember that they did these great miracles, but for every one that they did a miracle for, there were tens of thousands whose prayer seemed to go unanswered. It actually, visibly, was not answered how they had intended it, when they were looking for food or healing from leprosy. So can you see what Jesus is communicating through these stories? He's saying, look, think of the greatest prophets. In the eyes of sort of the the general mindset, they did too little and in the wrong place. So, what he's communicating to them is expect the same of your Messiah. That based on what you're thinking about right now, this sort of literal political coup, what the Messiah is going to do is going to be, in your eyes, too little and in the wrong place. And here he's actually kind of gesturing that he is going to be the savior of all people, of Gentiles, right? Sidonians and Syrians are precursors to us who are I don't know all your ancestries, but German and Panamanian and English, you know, like all of us different kind of people groups. Uh, He's gonna be the savior of all of us. But that he's certainly uh, gonna disappoint those who are sort of coming at him with their preconceived notions of what the Messiah should do and where, right? It's like, yeah, God's work for God's people. Like he's gonna be just for us. He's gonna kick butt everywhere else. Um, (laughs) That's what they had in mind. And so when Jesus tells the story of Elisha and Elisha, he's a good communicator. They get it. They know exactly what he's saying, and they're really mad about it. Right? I mean, this is almost like a prefiguring of that spirit of Palm Sunday. Like one moment excitement, the next moment, get out of here, right? they they filled with rage. They, I mean, it's kind of this mob scene. They're like bumping him out of the town, trying to get him to a cliff's edge to kill him. Right? That's the extent of their disappointment when their expectations of what Jesus was going to do for them were counteracted with Jesus' own actual words. Um, I think it's important to fully catch the depth of the story, to to actually empathize a little bit with the crowd who was doing the wrong thing, but to see why. Um, In Jesus' day, the fate of religion and, and and politics weren't as separate as they are sort of as they are constitutionally in America. They were kind of more blurred together. Those of you, I know some of you are studying ancient history in the medieval times, you know, in different times of history, they've been more blurred together. So one of the ways we can see why are they so disappointed is if we think on political terms, because it was political for them. So imagine, if a, imagine a newly elected president saying, I'm gonna defund the entire military And take all that money and use it to help those who've entered the country illegally. Just imagine what how the citizenry how I mean like no 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 you're supposed to look out you got it all backward. There would be this I mean it's it's unimaginable it's ludicrous. I was hoping to get a laugh with that, but um, (laughs) I see it's obviously very serious. um, But what I'm (laughs) but actually maybe your seriousness proves the point even further, right? Like the fact that even to use a sort of Hyperbolic, absurd anecdote. is like, oh my gosh, what's he going to say? <laughs> Points to the sort of level of on edge that the people were about the Messiah. Right? It's like, what do you mean you're going to help Syrians and Sidonians? Like we've been, we've had captive, we've been captive to Roman overlords for two hundred years, and they shed the blood of our heroes just hundred and fifty years ago in the Maccabean revolt. You're going to be helping them? You know, like. Do you see why they might be like, no, 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 wrong guy. This guy must be the wrong guy, right? Um, That's why they acted as they did. Um, They would think, in fact, that Jesus wasn't doing the right miracles in the right places. Um, And sure enough, when we actually look at the Gospels as a whole, we know from John's Gospel and um, from the records, later records of the eyewitnesses, Jesus' ministry was about, th- his public ministry from baptism of John to the day he died was about three and a half years. So 11, 1200 days of active ministry. And when we look at all the accounts in the Gospels when some specific person was healed or at names that people were brought to him and they were healed, there seemed to be about 40 days in that 1100 where he did a miracle of healing which is still amazing. He raised the dead. I mean, these are miracles that were, uh, by God's ordinance, kept in continued memory in the church through the gospels. But still, it's a different picture, right? 40 days of healing in an 1100 day ministry is different than the sort of, I don't know, like Pez dispenser we sort of think about sometimes in terms of how God maybe meted out his mercy. And of those whom Jesus healed, some were Romans. One was a Syrophoenician, right, the, the centurion's daughter, like, was a Roman citizen. Like, he's not just coming for the people of Israel. He shows, like, his mercy is, breaks beyond the bounds of ethnic Israel and reaches out to all people. So I tease all this out to say I think this gospel, which is um, maybe it seems sort of like a segue passage to the more famous stories in Luke's gospel, it's actually, I think, here placed for us as a tale of warning um, to not be like the residents of Nazareth, right? To not um, impose on the risen Lord what we think He should be doing, because if we do that, it's going to lead, lead to disappointment and rage and rejection. Us rejecting Him, and then ultimately Him rejecting us. It's interesting to note that in the rest of Jesus' ministry, He'll, he'll go to se- some cities several times, Jerusalem, Capernaum, He never goes back to Nazareth, never goes back. This was their one chance, as far as we have written in the Gospel. And they rejected Him. Um, Unlike the the citizens of Nazareth, uh, who were imposing their picture of Jesus, as Christians who call Jesus Lord, we should accept Jesus as He is, and accept what He does as what He does, right? Because the temptation will be to say, um, Lord, you're doing too little. Lord, you're doing these things in the wrong place. Like, I'm the good Christian, why aren't you helping me? <laughs> right? Like, the temptation of the citizens of Nazareth continues. But w- we must resist it if we want to sort of break from this tragic trajectory of them trying to push Jesus off a cliff. Um, if he blesses people that we don't think are deserving, um, if we Wait, long stretches of time, and, and again, these things only make sense in hindsight, um, but long stretches of time where the prayer is going unanswered. How many people in Israel are saying, Lord, bring us food in this famine? And their prayer was unanswered, right? Cracks open to this whole problem of evil thing that is impossible to solve. What we know that we shouldn't sort of turn it, disappointment into anger against God, right? He will work according to His will, at His discretion, and from our vantage point, it will probably look like too little and in the wrong place. And that's okay, actually, to be expected, based on what Jesus is telling us here, of how Elijah and Elisha are pictures of His own ministry, then and now, right? Because the Lord is still ministering. He's still alive. He's still on His throne in heaven. He's still ministering to us through His Holy Spirit. We should trust Him, actually. Trust His discretion and His action. and I think not just in our outward lives, right? Like, I know most of us are praying for sometimes big outward interventions to trust him for those, like, Lord, sometimes you just hail name, name in the Syrian. I don't know why. But even inwardly for the small daily graces that we ask for, as I was thinking about this passage, um, you know, I know so many of us, as we go through the challenges of the day, there's, Lord, give me peace in this situation. Give me guidance over here. These are good prayers to be inviting the Lord into. And what I sort of thought about is, imagine sort of the soul as like the the land of Israel, this sort of topography, that we might be saying, Lord, do work over here, but maybe he's going to do work over here. We think we need this sort of help, but maybe he's doing a different kind of help. We think he should help this widow, but maybe he's helping the widow in Sidon. I think inwardly that... um, I know myself sometimes I'll be praying, Lord, I really please give me peace in this situation, and peace doesn't come. I'm, I'm disappointed in my request. Sometimes it's answered, thanks be to God, but sometimes it's not. But I think faith, true Christian faith says, Lord, I know that you are present, and I know that you're working. It, it's apparently not in the direction in which I'm asking you to work, but I'm not gonna turn this into bitterness and disappointment and anger. I'm going to trust that you're healing people, you're healing parts of myself, maybe even below my conscious radar, things in me, scars from sins long ago, from experiences. Who knows what you're healing and in what order? But trusting, Lord, you know me best. You know what I need to endure and what I need to be relieved from. You know what is shaping me and what is crushing me. And you you know that better than me. And to trust uh, his discretion, that he's not a genie or a vending machine, he's the Lord, he's a person. He's Jesus Christ. And if we call him, Lord, uh, to trust that what he's doing is enough, right? That even though I might feel like, oh, Lord, it's not enough to say, Lord, I trust that you're the Lord. It's enough. And to trust him with that. And, and when we make that turn to choose not to be like the citizens of Nazareth and saying, Lord, if you're the Messiah, you should definitely be helping me in this way. But to say, okay, Lord, I, w- I obviously need your help. I'm going to keep asking for it but I'm gonna trust what you do as help. It's almost like, um, I used to work in the theater, so this is the image that comes to mind. You can put screens of, they're called gels, in front of theater lights, and it changes the color on the stage, right? If you ever hung a theater light, we used to have them in here. Um, Thankfully, we don't anymore. Um, It changes the whole color of what you're looking at. I think it's the same thing with this realization, to see like, well, Lord, the moment we actually with our heart say, I trust that you're the Messiah and you are healing according to your discretion and goodwill, it changes the color of what were the thing that was the trouble before. It's still trouble. Famine was still famine. Leprosy was still leprosy. But it changes its color in the sense that the Father is the Father and that, he, and that our lives are under his care. And there's a sense of dependence and the comfort that comes from dependence even in difficult times. Uh, Those of you who've had kids are sort of freshly learning There's sort of these numinous um, moments when you know little Lucy is really sick or frightened or something just uninhibitedly trusts that I'll keep her safe and make it better. It's like wow yeah that's that's kind of a picture of what it's like to trust the Lord in in this case. So I, I invite you to steer away from the path of the citizens of Nazareth and to trust the Messiahs the Messiah uh, and his good timing amen